your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation 2, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17. Man, until it rains, and then once it rains, it's cool, it's great, no problem. So, everybody's doing well tonight. Revelation chapter 2, and let's start with verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou uh, hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the, the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Remember, just for reading the book of Revelation out loud, you are blessed. Amen. That's what, that's what it says. And uh, so tonight, uh, we are blessed just by reading uh, these verses in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, today, we're going to talk about this third church and the seven churches. Um, Jesus is personally addressing the churches, and we're talking about what it looks like to have pure faith. We live in a, in, a, in a society where everything evil is good and everything good is evil. And uh, we're talking tonight about Pergamos, and it's a very kind of a almost shocking, disturbing, uh, unsettling type message. And I, I just, I hope that this rings through in your spirit tonight, because this Pergamos is a worldly and corrupted church. And uh, there is a battle that's going on in not just the United Pentecostal Church, but in all of the apostolic realm, a battle with worldliness. And uh, it's difficult for me to begin to grasp the fact that these seven churches to which the Lord addresses are apostolic churches that taught the apostolic doctrine. You know, part of that may uh, have to do the fact that we read the, the Scripture and we look at this church with, with you know, rose-colored glasses, Right? We look at these churches and we think, oh, that must have been a good church. But, you know, the vast amount of, of spiritual growth uh, that I have had that's taken place um, pretty much, you know, in, in this apostolic church that, that we're a part of today uh, for the last four decades. And when I read about these churches that have all sorts of problems and doctrinal matters that are very detrimental and uncorrected sin and its members, and there's false teachers who are bold, and spiritual warfare that breaks them down. It, it's challenging for me to say, why did they put up with that? But then I look at our church, and I look at churches of friends that I have, uh, people that I know, other churches that are going through some severe issues, and I say, how do we put up with it? Why do we tolerate it? We get so used to it. It's kind of like, you know, the, the lobster that goes in the pot when the water's cold. And the heat just keeps turning up and turning up until that, that lobster's boiled. And I think sometimes we, haven't, we don't realize how uh, dangerous it is, you know, for us uh, in this kind of a climate, a spiritual climate. So I've looked at this third church uh, that the Lord Jesus addresses through John, and I want to just kind of take a moment to remind you of some of the warnings that were given. Jude 3 and 4, loved when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, 5, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
Ephesians 4 and 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And then 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. It's important that we notice here that the devil uh, uses and the enemy is using people to work as decoys. He places the decoys into a setting of believers. And then he uses their leavening influence to corrupt the church. And that's why Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit can mess up the whole situation. Uh, Joby Warwick writes a harrowing story in Triple Agent about how a Jordanian physician who was radicalized on Islamic websites, he, he says this young physician would stay up late at night after his work in the daytime among the pediatric patients in Amman, Jordan. He would be infused with the vitriolic rhetoric of the Islamic preachers on YouTube until he wanted to get involved in the jihad. He did so after he was picked up by the Jordanian spy agency who found his online postings. They were going to attempt to send him to Pakistan to, uh, as a spy, but when he got there, he revealed why he was there. He told the jihadists that he was working for the Jordanians and had some connections to the CIA. Over a period of about a year, this young physician put on a suicide vest and made it to the CIA compound in, coast of, in Afghanistan and killed himself along with nine other top CIA officers working in the Middle East. Once the investigation was done by the CIA director, Leon Panetta, it was discovered that the CIA had let down their very high standards that they normally followed because they were so desperate to get Osama bin Laden and his two top lieutenants. The same thing, though, can happen to churches when they allow their guard to be dropped in pursuit of success. In pursuit of crowds, in pursuit of fitting in, in pursuit of, of, of being politically correct in a in not politically correct world. Seemingly, I think at the root of all the efforts of the devil that the devil would use is to get a church to get hooked on worldliness. For us to get comfortable with worldliness in our homes in the things that we talk about, in the things that we view, in the things that we uh, partake in. Milton Green uh, said, we can see both the true church, the bride of Christ, as well as the false church of harlotry. The latter has no understanding of God's laws, therefore she has no fear of God. She walks in darkness, death, and destruction. Matthew Henry says about uh, Pergamus, the heart of man is narrow and cannot contain both loves. The world draws down the heart from God so that uh, so the more love of the world prevails, the more the love of God dwindles and decays. The Spirit of God in true Christians is opposed to the Spirit of the world. There's got to be something in us that says, I don't want to be like the world. I don't want to partake in the things that the world thinks are fun and things are exciting. And we've got to have, amen, this, uh, this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of righteousness, and this, this uh, desire that doesn't have to be kick-started when we come to church, but every morning when we get up, it's got to be in us that says, what can I do to get closer to God today? What can I do, amen, to touch the throne today? What can I do to have heaven come to earth in my life today? There are three branches or three carnal appetites, I think, that grow on the tree of worldliness. And we find these in Scripture, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is pleasure, entertainment, amusement, comfort, addictions, movies, sports, travel, and a whole, whole host of other activities that people are involved in on a regular basis. Then there's the lust of the eyes, the intense desire to have something that we can see, and it usually revolves around possessions. You, you, some of you know what I'm talking about. You see something, you're like, I, I gotta have that, right? Maybe it's a vehicle, maybe it's a home, maybe it's uh, something for your home, maybe it's something for uh, one of the kids, amen? But it's, it's something, I gotta have it, I can see it, I want it. 
And then there's the pride of life, which is the exaggerated estimate of one's own value as a person. I'm just going to let it sink in. Self-ambition, a drive to be successful, to have more prominence, to have bigger and better than everyone else, or the prideful desire to be the man or be the woman. When this becomes deeply rooted in the life of an individual, specifically of one who's in the church, can have a really deadly effect on their spiritual life. And the longer they linger in a church, and the longer uh, that spirit is allowed to be a part of their church and uh, their, their circle of influence, the weaker the church becomes. I'm, I'm, I told you this is not going to be the most exciting, fun message. This is the danger, and this is what we have to be very careful that we don't get to the place where we just tolerate all kinds of foolishness. This is what happened to the church at Pergamos. They allowed the world to corrupt the church. Pretty soon it got weird to worship. It got weird to be spiritually minded. It was kind of like you're, you're different if you uh, were seeking after God. You, you were different if, if you hungered for the things of God. If you were... Uh, I'm sorry, spiritually thirsty. <coughs> Pergamos became a worldly and corrupted church, and we find this church along the postal route of Asia Minor. It's called Pergamos. It was about halfway along the trade route of the seven churches. Ephesus had some good saints in it, but they lost, lost their first love. Smyrna was a church that was desperately impoverished in material things, but incredibly rich in spiritual matters. While all of these churches had to deal with persecution from the Roman Caesars, how they dealt with it did something to them. It caused Ephesus to lose its first love. It led, great, it led, uh, led Smyrna to a greater uh, uh, devotion to God. But at Pergamos, the pressure caused them to buckle to worldliness. I fear probably more than anything, this is what we have to deal with in the American church. It's not just in the American church, but uh, there's a difference in going to, to uh, church in Guatemala and going to church in Costa Rica. There's a church in, uh, difference uh, going to church in Athens, Greece, and going to church in South Africa. I've been those places. I know the difference, and I can tell you what the difference is. It's very simple. There are some people that they uh, just go to church, and it's just something that they do. It's part of their life, but it's not the main part of their life. And we have got to understand that we cannot buckle to worldliness. We cannot give in, amen, to look like the world, to act like the world, and to think like the world. Amen? And Pergamos, they were so worried about being accepted. So worried about fitting in. Pergamos... Uh, is the modern-day Bergama, which is now the nation of Turkey. And there are some other things that we know about Pergamos in John's day. It was located about 20 miles from the coast of the Aegean Sea, about 100 miles north of Ephesus, about 70 miles from Smyrna. Would have been a three-day journey from Smyrna. It was known for wealth and fashion. It could have been the Paris of its day. Garments that were purchased in Pergamos and sent abroad were highly valued. It was a royal city. It was the seat of the Roman government in the province of Asia. It had a library that was around 200,000 books, second only to the library of Alexandria, Egypt. The 200,000 books were all hand copied by scribes on parchment made of animal skins. The parchment process had been perfected by scholars in Pergamos. Mark Antony was so caught up with the library that he sent the books to his lover, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. It was an educated city. It was somewhat given to sophistication because of the exaltation of the human mind and learning. Even though it was an ancient city, the work and the effort of the inhabitants made it a very desirable place to live in Asia. But just because there was material advancement, it did not translate into their spiritual maturity. Revelation 2 verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. 
At each point in the address to the seven churches, there's a very clear identification of the Lord Jesus Christ and His deity. This, this address that we're reading here tonight, it holds the same patterns, the same picture given in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, where the Lord is among His churches and is seen with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. This is the first threatening introduction that we see the Lord give to the churches. He's coming as a judge and an executioner, and He's coming with a sword. The description of this sword is broadened when you understand the Greek word romphia, This is the large sword that was three and a half feet long or so and had to be used as one would grip a baseball bat. The word is powerful to come against worldliness that appears in any church. What is understood as worldliness uh, is that worldliness can be the door that opens a church up to compromise. The church at Pergamos is a picture of so many apostolic churches over history. In A.D. uh, 313, Constantine issued something called the Edict of Milan. It gave liberty to Christians and ended the horrific persecution that they had endured for almost three centuries. He made Christianity the state religion and then started merging all of the pagan practices with Christianity. Heathen priests now became Christian priests. And heathen temples now were transformed into Christian temples. And heathen feasts now became Christian festivals. That's why when people get bent out of shape and they say, don't call it Easter, because that's a pagan festival. They're right, but we're still just celebrating Jesus rising from the dead. But this is why some people have uh, such an, uh, you know, a, uh, they they don't want anybody, they don't want anything to to mix, and I I get that. When this happens, this, this, this mixing the, the conversion to Christianity no longer matters. You don't even really have to be a Christian now. You just, you know, the new birth doesn't really matter uh, because this compromise promotes this universalism and it, it just means everybody's going to end up in heaven no matter what they do. There's only one remedy for fighting back against this. And the scripture says it's for the Lord to show up with a double-edged sword of the word of God. Because the word is powerful. That's why we can't quit preaching. We can't quit teaching. We can't quit living and patterning our life after the word of God. Amen. Amen. We might be dealing with some situations right now and you say, Pastor, I don't even like you. I I, I don't like Brother Cooper. I don't like anybody that preaches here. That's fine, okay? You've got your issues. You have your attitude adjustment that needs to take place. I'll give you that. But what you cannot do is you cannot say, I don't like the Word. Because if what I'm teaching or preaching, what Brother Cooper's teaching or preaching, Brother Dummett or anybody else that stands up here, if what we're teaching and preaching is the Word of God, your life needs to line up to the Word. Amen? The Word of God is powerful. Amen. Preachers come and go. Teachers come and go. I've seen some, I mean, I've seen some people that, look, they started skyrocketing. And and Josh and I, we've talked about this, Brother Cooper and I, we've grieved about some people that, that were like, man, those guys can really preach. They're just incredible. They're awesome. And then the next thing you know, they've had an affair and they've, you know, done this and they've done that. And they're not even preaching anymore. They're not even in the church anymore. And it's so frustrating sometimes you say, how can this be? How how could somebody that had such a grasp of the Word of God, because preachers come and go, people come and go, but the Word of God is still the same. Amen. It's always going to be yesterday, today, and forever. That's why this church can't be founded upon pastoral personality. It's got to be founded on the Word of God. That's why we teach and preach the Bible. That's why we teach and preach exploring God's Word. That's why we're serious about this. Amen. The Word of God is powerful. Let me tell you what the Word of God can do. It repairs and generates. 
Amen. Psalm 107, it releases from bondage, John chapter 8. It illuminates Psalm chapter 119. It produces righteous faith in Romans chapter 10. It gives godly wisdom, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It reproves and rebukes, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It rejoices the heart, Jeremiah 15. It regenerates, James 1. It will judge the world, 2 Peter 3. It restrains the believer, Psalm 119.9. It guides our life. Psalm 119. It brings joy to our hearts. Psalm 119. It produces spiritual growth. 2 Peter or 1 Peter 2. It is the root of new life in a believer. 1 Peter 1. And it is truth. Psalm 119. That's why you need the Word of God in your life. Amen. I don't care what they say. I don't care how awesome of a preacher or teacher or singer or musician they are. You've got to have the Word of God for yourself in your life on a regular basis. Amen. We need to read it privately. We need to meditate on it internally. And we need to share it with others. We need to preach it and teach it publicly. It matters that we spend time in the Word of the Lord. Amen. I know sometimes people think, man, Pastor, you... You seem like all you talk about is we got to get into the Word. I I wish that I could just, and I'm breaking away for a second, I wish I could just get you to understand how important it is for each and every one of us to get into the Word of God every day for ourselves. If you'll get into the Word of God, amen, I won't have to pastor you as much because you'll already be looking at things that need to change in your life. And the Bible will start to show you some things in your life that's got to be different. And when you start reading, you'll get convicted. And when you start praying about it, God will give you the power to change those things that need to be changed in your life. We've got to spend time in God's Word. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. We can see the culmination of the power of the sword of the Lord in the final portions of the book of Revelation when we read Revelation 19 We see in verses 14 and 15, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Amen. You, you, You need to... If I can just kind of put it out there, if you got a bad attitude and things aren't right in your life, chances are it's not God. Chances are it's, it's not the church. And as irritating as I am, chances are it's probably not me either. What you need to do is you need to fall upon the rock. Amen. You you need to go to the Word of God and say, where does my life need to change? What things in my life need to be better? Amen. Because if you don't deal with things now and let the Word of God judge you and deal with you, there will come a day where the Word of God will judge you. And it will be powerful and it will be painful. Amen. Revelation 2.13, the commendation, he says, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name. Hast not denied my faith, even in those wherein, even in those days wherein Antipas, Antip, Antipas sorry, was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. The next portion here that we read is that he knows their works, but he also knows where they live. They're literally living, according to what we understand, at the seat of Satan. This is in contrast to where Smyrna and Philadelphia are, the synagogue of Satan. The word that is used here for dwellest is kadokine, uh, uh, and it means that they have a permanent residence there. The Lord is literally saying to them, you are living in a city where there is a strong satanic influence. But you must stay there and not leave. Don't pack your bags and go to an easier place. You're in a lion's den and you must live out your purpose in that place. It's easy to run from things when we find ourselves under great pressure. Seemingly everything is coming against us. No part of our Christian life is, are we ever supposed to flee and run. Because our aim is not escape. 
Our aim is not comfort and convenience, but rather great conquest. And this scripture lets us know, hey, I know where you are. I know where you are. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, let it comfort you that your Lord knows all about it. And He can either remove you from the trying position, or else He can still more glorify His grace by supporting you in it and enabling you to overcome the enemy. He knows that Satan desires to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, and he prays for you that your faith fail not. He knows your perils and he considers your trials. Right well, he perceives the way in which Satan will first mislead you and then accuse you. The subtlety of the old serpent, he understands. He sees your struggles, your failures, and your desperate endeavors to hold fast to the faith. He knows how at night you are grieved as you make your confession before Him of your shortcomings. But He knows also the peculiar circumstances in which you are placed, and He judges you with great mercy. If God expected you to be perfect, if He expected you to never make a mistake, then you wouldn't need mercy and you wouldn't need grace. But He said, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. When you go through hard times and you go through trials and you mess up and you blow it big time, He said, I'm there with you and I want to give you the grace and I want to give you the strength that you need to get back up again. I know that you are at the seat of Satan. I understand that you're dealing with some hard circumstances, He said, but I know where you are. The seat of Satan in Pergamos, it could be a reference to a few things. One of those could be the altar of Zeus. It was a gigantic temple. In this gigantic temple, built on a very high hill, towered around 800 feet. It was shaped like a horseshoe, about 120 by 112 feet. The altar of Zeus was literally 90 by 40 feet. Pagan worship in all of its excess took place there. It also could have been a reference to the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius, this is a morbid place, the serpent wrapped around the staff. The symbol of medicine comes from the worship of Asclepius. There was another large temple to Asclepius uh, where people would come in hopes of being healed. They would enter the temple, lie down on the floor where there were thousands of non-poisonous snakes crawling around on the floor of this temple. And the sick were in hopes that these snakes would crawl over them and heal them. Some of you are like, I couldn't do it. Those apostolic Christians in that era, in that city, would have been reminded of the connection of evil. Revelation 12, 9, that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast, into the, cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse uh, 14 and 15 of Revelation 12, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time and the, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And then Revelation 22, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. They would have understood that the serpent was not a good reference. It was not uh, something that they should be messing with. And uh, during the reign of Diocletian, there were some Christian stone cutters, and they refused to carve an image of Asclepius in stone, and they were killed because of their refusal to do so. We live in a day when people think we should not have strong convictions about our religious beliefs. And God help you if you say something publicly. There comes a time in life where we cannot move any further backward and compromise. It does matter what you believe. It does matter. If you've not been converted, if there's no relationship with the Lord, then you can never understand the price that some people pay for their faith in the Lord. I told you about the book. My wife and I finished that book about those people in dangerous places who are uh, willingly giving their life for the Lord. And we think about people being martyred and we, we have a real, real hard time 
let me, let me just say, we have a real hard time in America understanding what's going on. There are so many countries right now where Christians are being persecuted, they're being imprisoned, they're being beaten, they're being tortured, and they're even being executed. We don't understand this. But the Lord commends the faithful martyr Antipas, one of the leaders of the work of Pergamos. He stood strong against worldliness and against the compromise, and he was killed by Domitian. And tradition says that he was roasted to death inside of a brass bull. That's not a good way to die. The faithful martyr literally could mean witness. That is what Antipas was. He was a man who paid with his life for his refusal to compromise. He stood as a stark rebuke to the false teachers who would not be devoted to the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, how devoted are we? How devoted are we? Sometimes when things are inconvenient, we just choose to do what's convenient. I mean, these people, everything was inconvenient. To live for God in, every, in any way, shape, or form was inconvenient. And so God corrects them, and this is the correction that they receive in verses 14. He says, I have a few things against thee, because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat sacri the things sacrificed unto idols, to commit fornication, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, we come to the correction portion of the letter. We come to the understanding of what God is trying to tell them. He had commended them for the overcomers, but there was a fraction of the church that was wrong. Not just in their belief, but in their practice. The segment of the letter brings home to us more probably ever crucially than ever before the importance of the apostolic doctrine. Doctrine matters, although there are so many in so-called Christian churches today that want to downplay it. Far too many make light of the doctrine and they perceive it as being boring and unimportant. I read several articles just about every week, and it's from mainline Christianity. I just kind of like to see what's going on. and it, You would be surprised to find how much uh, softening of doctrine and, you know, how do we get along with the LGBTQ community? How do we do this and how do we do that? And There's so many things that are biblical and theologically wrong, and some of these things are not even, we don't even consider these things today. We don't even think about some of these things that are going on today. But the Lord doesn't see it that way. He, he thinks that everything is important. He holds a church that uh, tolerates these errors and these, uh, these difficult situations and, and they go the wrong way. He does not want doctrinal error to be tolerated in the church. I think you can do and say everything in love. I don't think you hate any sinner, but I think you do have to say, this is sin. I don't think you have to humiliate, or they, they call it shaming, right? You ever, have you heard that? It's like, you know, well, uh, body shaming, and what are some of the other ones? Uh, you know, weight shaming, uh, there's gay shaming, there, there's all kinds of them now. What about Christian shaming? I mean, that's what happens every day, all day long. Titus 3, 10 and 11, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. So there's two things that they were dealing with here, and, and they were heresies, they were, they were heretics that were in the church. Right here at Pergamos, one of them had to do with what, the teachings of Balaam, Right? And he was an Old Testament prophet. How many of you have read about Balaam? You know who Balaam is. You've read the story. Okay. So you know that Balaam, uh, when you read through that story, you find out he was the Old Testament prophet from uh, Pethor. Who There was a group of sorcerers that lived there. There were some scholars that believed that Balaam was never a true prophet, but a sorcerer like Simon that we read about in Acts chapter 8. He received a strong uh, condemnation in Peter's epistle, 2 Peter 2, 15 uh, 16, uh, through 16 as such, as being kind of a sorcerer. 
The church at Pergamos was practicing the doctrine of Balaam, which allowed them to eat things offered to idols and also permitted fornication. So, you know, these things were allowed. They were okay. I don't know if I, you know, we got kids in here. I don't know if, just, just think about that. Think about that. Would you be okay going to a church where you knew people, some people in the church were like, hey, yeah, fornication's okay. You can sleep with who you want to. You know, you want to, if you want to do, you know, we don't think about meats offered to idols, you know, but there are some, there are some correlations, you know, there are some things that we could throw in there. I won't throw them in tonight, but there are some things out there, but, but basically it was saying these things are okay. It's no big deal. And so eating food that had been dedicated to idols was the challenge really of that day, um, when an animal was sacrificed at a pagan temple, only a small amount of the sacrifice was burned. The pagan priest would have the choice cut, and then the rest would be given to the worshiper. And then they would throw a feast for his family and his friends, and most of the feast would take place in the banquet rooms of these pagan temples. The question that arose at the time was whether or not believers should attend these parties at the pagan temples and eat the food that had been dedicated to these false gods, these idols. So the church members were involving themselves in the interaction, not just going to these pagan temples, but guess who was hanging out at the pagan temples? The pagan prostitutes. And so, you know, what happens at the temple stays at the temple. Or does it? And so they were caught up in sexual perversion and wickedness, and the Lord basically said, stop it. That's enough. Cut it out. And he rebuked the church for their behavior. False teachers and carnal leaders believed that this was okay. It was acceptable for them to... We're reaching these people. Because we go the same places they do. We do the same things they do. We look just like they do. Sound familiar? We shouldn't cut ourselves off from society. We don't want to be that weird group of people like a cult or something. I'm going to keep moving because I could preach there for a minute. So Paul dealt with this. He had already dealt with this. And they didn't handle it right. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? You can't celebrate Jesus at the pagan temple? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, he says, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the spirit, flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That does not sound like God was okay with them participating in these practices. Because I'm... Short on time, I don't have, I, I'm not going to go into some of this, but man, I'm telling you, today we live in a world where everything is okay. You know, we, we show up one minute and we, we worship God, we, we praise God, and the next minute, out in the club, we're, 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 we're doing things that aren't pleasing to God, we know are not pleasing to God. We're, we're in things that we shouldn't be into, and, and God is telling this church at Pergamos, this is not acceptable. This is not good. I'm not happy with this. And there was another doctrinal heresy that they were at odds with, uh, that was at odds with holiness and righteousness. It was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And I've talked about this before, and several of you probably have heard it, but it was very similar in practice to that of Balaam, which allowed them to participate in, in a heathen or pagan lifestyle of immorality. It's kind of like it's okay to be like the world. It's okay to be just like the world and, and still claim to be a Christian. There were many believers who did not practice the sins of the teachers of Balaam and Nicholas, but the Lord's indictment was against them because they tolerated it. Well, I'm not doing it, Pastor. I know, but... 
but what about the people that you know are doing it? When was the last time you said, you better cut that out? Don't you know God's not going to be pleased with that? Well, it's not my place to say. Whose place is it? We're the body of Christ. It's your church. Amen. This is the church that we're a part of. So we can't tolerate these things. If, if the pastor has to go around and he has to correct everything, man, we're going we're gonna to have everybody leaving the church. Some of you say, well, pastor, I just think it's, your, I think it's your place to do it. I think it's your place to do it. No, I know it's your place to do it. Because if there's something that's going on in the body, it needs to be taken care of by the body. If it's appropriate for me, I'll say it. But if you see something that's not right, why don't you tell somebody, you know what, let's pray about this. I don't feel right about this. As a matter of fact, that's why I have trouble hanging out with you, because I get uncomfortable. I, boy, I wish I could preach just a minute in here. Oh, but I'm not doing it, Pastor. I, I'm living a good life. My, my family's living good. I understand that. But there are some people that will try to mix in worldliness and say it's okay. By tolerating these behaviors and the teachings, uh, the church is not, they weren't practicing church discipline. They were not correcting the issues. They shared in the guilt of the impact that was had on the undiscerning. There were some people that were coming in and the babies were being aborted because there, there was nobody taking care of business. It's our church. It's our church. We need to be prayerful, we need to be fasting. And we need to stand guard against everything that's not pleasing to God. Church members are responsible. Every one of us is responsible in spiritual matters. This is not a cruise ship heading toward heaven. It is a battleship in war with the flesh, with the world, and with the devil. Amen. And we have got to be on guard. We have got to make sure. Amen. I've already I've preached it before, but this is we're not just lollygagging to the finish line. Amen. We are in a fight. Amen. We are in a fight. This is the counsel that he gives in verse 16. He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's this advice that he's given to his church? They're supposed to repent, but repentance is more than just a, a tearful time at the altar or feeling guilty for what they had been doing. Repentance was a change of mind and a change of their behavior. They weren't going to act like that anymore. They weren't going to do those things. They were going to have to do the hard work to reform and stop tolerating sinful action that was going on in their church. They, the church cannot tolerate evil in any form. We cannot be okay with it. It cannot be all right. We have to take care of things. We have to say this is just not acceptable. This is just not right. Amen. The Corinthians were so boastful in their display of spiritual gifts, but they were allowing uh, sexual sins to exist. They were allowing things to go on. And sometimes I think, you know, I'm a little harsh or whatever. We were in Costa Rica, and the guy, the presbyter at the convention that we were at, there were some kids up in, uh, up in the seats, and they were carrying on. And he looked over at him and he pointed at him, and I didn't know what he said in Spanish, but it, it was to this uh, end. You better sit down and be quiet right now. I said, whoa. I knew what he said because they all went, mm -hmm, and they... I'm telling you, we, we've got to, I'm not saying that we have to beat everybody, amen, that comes into the church and we shouldn't, you know, we want people to feel welcome and we want people to feel uh, like they belong here. Yes, we do. But we also, when they're being disrespectful and they're being rude and they're being, uh, uh, you know, dishonorable, amen, in the house of God, somebody needs to say, hey, hey, that's enough. That's enough. Amen. This is our, this is our church. This is where we worship God together. Amen. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. through 8, Your glorying is not good. They, they were so excited. They, they had spiritual gifts working in their church, but they were still allowing these bad sins to exist. He said, you know that a, living, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A church fails when it becomes a place where people are comfortable in their lifestyle of sin. 
The church cannot afford to be a place where unbelievers feel comfortable never being converted. A church is a place where people hear the truth and they're convicted of their sin and they turn to the Lord in repentance and they have an opportunity to be saved. It needs to be done with love. It needs to be done with grace. But it also needs to be done firmly. Amen. We cannot afford to deal so haphazardly with the souls of the lost and never tell them the truth. The King James Version says the Lord will fight against those who are guilty of this. Think about that. The Lord is so serious about this. He says, you, you go to a church where it's just all comfortable and you can do whatever you want and nobody ever says anything to you and you just kind of come and go as you want and please and it's all good. The Lord will fight against that kind of church. The New American Standard Bible says the Lord will make war against those false professors. For people that say, you can serve God, you can have your cake and eat it too, you can have your best life now and everything ought to be just rosy and peaches, that's a lie. That's a lie. And you know why people fall away? Because they believe that lie. Living for God is not always going to be easy. Many times it's going to be complicated. And you're going to go through things that are trying to uh, to, to get you to not believe and to get you to give up. And I, I quit. I'm sick of this. I'm done. I can't. You know, the, the, the reason that so many people fall away is because they don't have that battle mindset. Amen. We are in a war. Paul said you've got to put on the armor every day. Amen. You, you can't be a wimp about this. Amen. In verse 17, and I'm coming to a close, but he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone, in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So there, I pointed it out the first week we talked about the seven churches. Here it is again. There will always be overcomers in every church. There will always be overcomers. There will always be, there will always be, there will always be overcomers in every church. Amen. I want to be an overcomer. Amen. I want to be who God wants me to be. There's always going to be that handful of people that say, I will be who God wants me to be. Amen. The Lord's reward to those uh, were the hidden manna and the white stone that had a new name on it. The manna is a source of food for the children of Israel during their exodus out of Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness. It kept them for 40 years in their travels. It was, it was a hidden man. It was different. It represents Jesus Christ. He was the bread of life. It is He who supplies the life that comes down from heaven. It's spiritual food for, put, for those of you who will put your lives into His life, into His calling for you. It's a symbol of the blessings and benefit of knowing God. He says, it's hidden, man. You have to seek it out. You have to want it. You have to go after it. You can't just, well, you know, I hope he hooks me up. No, you have to be serious about it. Man, the white stone was another benefit to those who are overcomers. It's white, right? Which leads us to summarize that could be a diamond. Could be something very pure. The white stone is a symbol of being acquitted of a crime. It's a token to a slave that had been set free. The white stone was also a mark of authority. It was given to the victors in the Greco-Roman games. The white stone represented hospitality from a host. The white stone was a manner of showing friendship, and it was a stone for a believer. As a believer, it shows the mystery name that only the Lord and you will know. I believe it's what He's called you to be. I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that specifically, but it says there's a new name written in it. Some of you used to be something, but he said, I'm going to give you, if you'll repent and you'll turn, I'm going to give you a new name. Amen. I'm going to give you a white stone, a pure stone, a victorious stone, and you're going to have a new name. It's going to be the you that I intend you to be. It's going to be the person that I've seen you can be. Amen. I want to be who you say I can be, God. That's what I want to strive for. Amen. Stand with me. Stand with me. Amen. We do not want to be a believer in a church that is not living up to their full potential. Amen. My wife and I, we went looking for something for the Campbells while we were in Costa Rica. We were in a store. It was a construction store. 
I'm telling you, it was like Lowe's. It, it was very similar to Lowe's. They had a lot of everything. And they even had a lot of workers, didn't they, honey? They had probably over 100 workers there. They were having team meetings. They were gathered in circles. They were doing all kinds of things. It was, I mean, they had people up watching. They had people walking the aisles. They had people stocking. They had people at almost every checkout. They had uh, management. They had everything going. And I don't know if it's because of my color. I kind of got racially profiled. I don't know. But it's like I was invisible. I mean, I asked probably four or five people for help. And they just kept, like we were ready to make a big purchase. We were about to make a, a significant purchase in that place that day. We, we had the money. We knew what we wanted. We just had a couple questions, and we couldn't get anybody to pay any attention to us. And I thought, I wonder how many times people visit our church. And they say, I don't know what, I, I don't know what to do here. I wish I could, there's a lot of people here that look like they know what's going on. I wish I could get somebody to help me. And we're too busy like, hey, where are we going to go to eat? What do we got going on afterwards? And I thought, man, I don't want to be a church that gets to be like that. I don't want us to get to be a church that, that we say, hey, we're a true apostolic church, but we look like the world. We do all the things that the world does. We just come together and worship Jesus, and we still have the name, and we still baptize in the name, and people still get filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in tongues, but we look and act and talk just like the world. We don't want to be a church that's marked by worldliness or corruption in these spiritual matters. We, we've got the greatest hope, amen? Jesus is our hope. We've got heaven, amen, that we are headed for. We know that there, the Holy Ghost that's inside of us is empowering us, amen, to become who God wants us to be, amen. He's going to help us with all the junk from the past that we're trying to let go of. And every step that we take, amen, we get one step closer to where He wants us to be. We know that. So let's not give up now. Amen. Let's not be corrupted by worldliness now. Don't let the things of the world come in and saturate your thinking and think I got to have this or I got to have that. We got to have more of Jesus. Amen. I want more of Him in my life. I want His Word to be the standard that I live by. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in this house. Thank you, God, for this church that loves truth and they love holiness. And God, I know that we're not uh, who you have intended us to be yet. But God, I thank you, Lord, because we've come a long way. And I thank you, God, because we have the desire to go further. God, I, I thank you. I know that we're in the last day. And I know that uh, there's affluence in our society. And, and we don't have really any need of anything. So it's, it's easy, God, for us to get lulled into comfort and, and into convenience. But God, may Make us hungry. Help us to be hungry for You. Help us to be desirous to be who You want us to be. And God, don't ever let us go to sleep or be apathetic. But God, let us go after truth and righteousness and who You want us to be, God, every day of our lives until You come back and take Your bride home to be with You forever. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is